An escapade on, or rather above, Mars, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Yes, we've got yet another visit to the Red Planet for you. The twist is that escapade, the escape and plasma acceleration and dynamics explorers, are budgeted far below a typical NASA Mars mission. We'll talk with Principal Investigator Robert Lillis of UC Berkeley about how his twin spacecraft will help us understand the tortuous evolution of that world. Bruce Betts is anxiously waiting in the wings with a night sky update, one of my favorite space history events, a random space fact, and a new space trivia contest. Sad news reported in the September 3rd edition of The Downlink. We learned a few days ago that Carolyn Shoemaker had passed away. Carolyn and her husband Gene worked steadily for many years, discovering hundreds of asteroids and 32 comets. One of those comets would get the name Shoemaker-Levy 9. Carolyn, Gene, and their colleague David Levy found it shortly before it smashed into Jupiter back in 1994. I had the honor of talking with Carolyn at the 2013 Planetary Defense Conference. We've got a link to that episode of Planetary Radio on this week's show page at planetary.org radio. Carolyn Shoemaker was 92. It happened too late to be included in the downlake, but we can now confirm that Perseverance successfully collected a sample from Jezero Crater on Mars. You can expect this major accomplishment, the first of many collections to come, will be covered here on Planetary Radio and through the Society's other channels. Want to have the downlink sent to you for free each week? You can subscribe at planetary.org downlink. Space is hard. Mars is harder. Getting a robot there to explore and do great science can cost a billion dollars or more, There are things only powerful, sophisticated spacecraft can do, but NASA wants to find out if a much more economical approach might complement the more expensive missions. Enter Escapade, the brainchild of a team led by University of California Berkeley research scientist Robert Lillis. Rob is also the associate director of the Planetary Group at Berkeley Space Science Lab. I asked Rob to be our guest when I saw a few days ago that his mission had gotten the green light from the space agency. Here's our conversation. Rob, welcome to Planetary Radio, and congratulations on this great news for Escapade. I'm looking forward to uh, your launch, what, in 2024, if all goes well? That's correct, Matt, and thank you very much for uh, the kind words. Yeah, Escapade is going to launch sometime in 2024. The uh, the launch date as yet of the launch vehicle are both TBD, but hopefully by early next year, we will have those those details all, all nailed down, and we're excited to get going. Not one, but two, count them, two spacecraft for peanuts, really, uh, under $80 million. As anybody who listens to this show knows, that's nothing for an interplanetary mission. And you're sending two spacecraft. I also got a note because I'm a UC product, the blue and gold. Thank you for that. (laughs) Right, right. That was actually the project manager, uh, Dave Curtis's idea. Um, He's been at Berkeley a lot longer than I have. But uh, yeah, we're big fans of uh, the Golden Bears. And so blue and gold made, made great sense. And also... It's just more fun than Spacecraft 1 and Spacecraft 2. So, you know. 
<laughs> no question about it. What's the current status now that you've gotten this uh, this go-ahead from NASA? Right. So this was the major milestone review, or the KDPC, Key Decision Point to Proceed to Phase C. Phase C is the detailed design, assembly, integration test, uh, and then the leading into uh, into D, which is, I guess, the final integration and and then the launch, and then Phase E is the operations, of course. So this is this is since the bulk of the money is spent in Phase C and, and Phase D, this is NASA's kind of way of saying, okay, we've seen your preliminary design, we think this is mature enough, this is feasible, we're happy to commit to the vast majority of the rest of the budget, and uh, you have our blessing to go ahead and start moving into the detailed uh, design and build. Okay, so you celebrated, obviously, and that was very appropriate. But now, is it hitting home that you've got, what, three years to build two very sophisticated spacecraft, which I think our audience also knows, that's not a lot of time. It's not a lot of time. And I I will say that Escapade is an example of what NASA is trying to prove can be a... Uh, legitimate model for these sorts of missions, where you accept slightly more risk, uh, you go with commercial partners who have more common off-the-shelf approaches to things, more modular approaches to things, where they, for example, have exactly the same radio for for every spacecraft that uh, they make. They're also vertically integrated. I, I should say Rocket Lab are our spacecraft partners. Um, yeah, They have an approach that's really new, what you might call commercial space entering the world of what, what what some people call civil space, you know, scientific space missions. And uh, between ourselves and the other two simplex missions, uh, Janus and Lunar Trailblazer, NASA is sort of conducting the experiment as to whether a slightly higher risk tolerance paradigm can allow for significantly more science per dollar, bang for your buck, you know, call it what you will, but really getting a lot more science for a lot less money and uh, we're one of the guinea pigs, and <laughs> we are confident of of our approach. Um, NASA wouldn't have passed us if they didn't think so too. So uh, this is this is going to be fun. I should say that the the costs for the instruments are actually very much in line for what we would have produced instruments for in the past for NASA. They are mm. they are build to print instruments. They are near exact copies of prior instruments, which does bring down the cost. But we're not cutting any corners in terms of how we build the science instruments. They would be built the same way as they would be for a much more expensive mission. It's much more to do with the spacecraft bus itself. That's where most of the the savings come from. I'm going to come back to that, but we, we should mention that Simplex, this NASA program, is Small Innovative Missions for Planetary ex- uh, Exploration. How will Escapade complement the work that is being done by those spacecraft uh, and others? And, and so we will start getting into the science. So let me start, start first of all, on, on how Escapade complements MAVEN and how Escapade was really launched by MAVEN. Um, mm. Having been on the MAVEN team since almost the beginning, back when I was in grad school, we had always wanted to understand the upper atmosphere and the plasma environment of Mars, and in particular, the ways in which solar energy in the form of solar extreme ultraviolet or solar wind, the interplanetary magnetic field, solar energetic particles, how that heliospheric environment interacts with the uh, the upper atmosphere, the ionosphere of Mars, and in particular, Mars's unique crustal magnetic fields. 
Maven was was sort of designed to study how that heliospheric environment, solar wind, solar extreme ultraviolet light, interplanetary magnetic fields, solar storms, solar energetic particles, how all those affect the Mars upper atmosphere and interact with it. Mars is really a unique planet. It has what we would call a hybrid magnetosphere. Okay, why do we say hybrid? Because it, it has many aspects of both an intrinsic magnetosphere, such as the Earth or Jupiter, where there is a global dipolar magnetic field uh, generated within the core. Typically, the magnetic field lines uh, extend far, far beyond the planet and actually stand off the solar wind to a large multiple of radii of the planet. So that's an intrinsic magnetosphere. And then there's also what we call an induced magnetosphere, such as Venus, where there's no global magnetic field, but there is a conducting ionosphere. And so the uh, the plasma pressure within the ionosphere itself can can sound off the solar wind, but it but the solar wind gets much, much closer. And mm. the bow shock in front of the planet, the, the region where the, where the interplanetary magnetic field piles up against the, the ionosphere, that's all much closer to the planet than it is in an intrinsic magnetosphere. And Mars has aspects of both, that intrinsic and induced. And the reason is Mars has these very strong, coherent crustal magnetic fields, but not uniformly across the planet. They're isolated mostly in the Southern Hemisphere, or the strongest of them certainly in the Southern Hemisphere, and mostly within a relatively narrow band of longitude between about 110 degrees and about uh, maybe... 250 degrees east, so that that Terra Serenum, Terra Chimeria area of Mars, and that's there's these strong crustal magnetic fields, and the only way that we can explain them is coherently magnetized chunks of crust, hundreds of kilometers long, tens of kilometers wide, tens of kilometers deep, and those result in, in strong magnetic fields that can push the solar wind away up to more than a thousand kilometers, but they're only really on one side at that strength. So as the planet turns you get very different interactions with the solar wind. And these magnetic fields connect and reconnect with the interplanetary magnetic field. And all that connection and reconnection results in plasma acceleration, which can give us aurora, which we're just starting to understand now. And that also helps to uh, sometimes tear away chunks of Mars's atmosphere. These huge blobs of plasma could just be torn away by these magnetic reconnection events, and that's an important part of Mars's atmospheric loss. And of course, MAVEN's prime reason for being uh, was to understand how Mars lost its atmosphere over time. So anyway, MAVEN has done a lot of work in understanding the, uh, the different escape processes uh, from Mars, both neutral escape, ion escape, etc. Escapade really, I mean, it can't do <laughs> you know nearly what MAVEN did. Um, Escapade is focused on that ion escape piece. It's just amazing to keep learning how very dynamic this planet is. Yeah, I mean, the more we look, the more we learn. And I'll, mm. I'll be honest, as as big as, I mean, the MAVEN team is more than 100 scientists, and we have scratched the surface on a lot mm. of, of what's going on. Even just with MAVEN data, there's, I'm sure, plenty more to learn, plenty more PhD theses. It's true, when Mars turns its magnetic face away or towards or or maybe side on from the solar wind, we get a really different plasma interaction, really different rates of atmospheric escape. The models tell us that those those rates of atmospheric escape change by a factor of three, maybe four at times, but those those are models. And while models obviously are extremely important, we'd love to measure that real-time response to those changes in the upstream conditions for times when Mars's magnetic face is in different uh, orientations. 
Nothing like getting real data points. Um, how much closer are we to understanding the history of the Martian atmosphere and you know what all these outside forces, especially solar radiation, are still are still doing to it? I mean, I'm certainly we know a lot more than we did before Maven got there, but clearly there are a lot of questions left. There are indeed, exactly. When you think about atmospheric escape from Mars and climate evolution, you need to think about the sources of atmosphere and the sinks of atmosphere and understanding how the sources and sinks of the important atoms, which are oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, um, nitrogen also, as well, have changed over time. You have to understand how that all fits together, but you also have to understand how the different isotopes of those same atoms have escaped differentially, meaning how much more nitrogen-15 has escaped compared to nitrogen-14, how much more oxygen-18 than oxygen-16, because you you can't interpret the uh, isotopic ratios that, for example, the SAM instrument on Curiosity um, has measured at the surface without knowing about how those constituents uh, escape differently, whether they are the heavier or the lighter isotope. That's sort of another next step beyond even where we are with MAVEN. So Mm. the first thing to do is to understand the processes for how those atoms and molecules escape from Mars, both in in neutral form and in ionized form, Um, how all that atmospheric chemistry works together and how that chemistry changed over time and what fraction of that atmosphere was lost as ions versus neutrals, we're still a long way from unraveling all, all that I don't want to call it a mess, but um, <laughs> that 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 rich, rich physical chemical system. There's many, many, many years worth of work in unraveling how the interior of Mars interacted with the atmosphere of Mars, interacted with the solar wind and the solar UV to drive planetary evolution over the billions of years. In all of this, we also edge closer to considering that greatest question of about Mars. Was there life? Uh, were the conditions right for the creation of life? And could it still be hiding out there today? Which I know is something that you've also uh, thought about from the angle of your own uh, research, uh, uh, talking about the radiation environment at the surface and so on. I mean, you've mentioned these solar energetic particles or SEPs, SEPs, which which have been a big part of uh, of your work. This is obviously fascinating stuff to you. Yeah, it's it's um, energetic particles at Mars have been a long time interest of mine. Actually, my my kind of introduction to the world of spacecraft missions was as deputy lead for the energetic particle detector on Maven. I I built a substantial fraction of uh, that instrument, and uh, it was really satisfying seeing it go to Mars. You know, see it work <laughs> as we intended it to work, and to measure the um, the spectrum, the intensity of these solar energetic particle storms that 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 happen on Mars. But on Maven, we're measuring that particle environment in orbit. And of course, human astronauts will be in orbit around Mars, and it's important to understand the the environment there. I should say, first of all, the particles above about 10 mega electron volts, 10 or 20, will penetrate a typical spacesuit. So any unprotected astronaut Mm. will be subject to a potentially harmful proton radiation from, from these SEPs in orbit. 
you need about 130 mega electron volts, give or take. It depends on you know where you are on Mars, how much atmosphere happens to be, be above you. Like at, at the bottom of the Hellas Basin, there's a lot more above you than there is at the top of Olympus Mons, for example. But on average, about 130 mega electron volts or higher, those will make it down to the surface and those will, will cause significant uh, fluxes of, of, of harmful radiation. And we've worked closely with the team on the, um, the Curiosity RAD instrument, RAD stands for Radiation Assessment Detector at Mars. And over the course of the last, oh, they've been there, what, eight years, eight or nine years now? They've yeah. measured, I believe, five, uh, maybe six so-called ground-level events where enough radiation has reached the surface of Mars from these um, energetic particles that they've they've noticed a significant increase in uh, the particle flux at the surface. They've never measured a true whopper on the surface of Mars. We think had it been there in 2003, it would have like gone off off the charts. The the Halloween 03 event is the one that we still talk about in uh, the Mars energetic particle uh, community huh. as being as being the huge one. But there's this background of galactic cosmic rays. Which uh, easily make it, it make it uh, through the Martian atmosphere, and they're 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 ever present. And the highest dose rate that's been seen by uh, the MSL RAD instrument is about two, maybe two and a bit times higher than that than that background. So, in reality, most of the energetic particle hazard for humans on the surface of Mars, at least in the last eight or nine years, has not been from SEPs because we've had a relatively weak solar max. The solar cycle of the most recent one has been kind of a weak one. So it's those galactic cosmic rays. To get away from those, there's nothing you can do but dig underground. You've got to get about two meters of regolith between you and those and those cosmic rays to reduce the level of radiation that you're getting down to a kind of an acceptable level. Um, and of course, this has implications for how much time human uh, visitors, human colonists should or could spend on the surface of Mars. But... Just because the most recent solar cycle has been weak doesn't mean that there aren't whoppers in our future, because there have been whoppers in our past. And we're we're pretty sure that there, there have been events, even since the beginning of the space age. There was an event in 1989, I believe, that would have created a significant cancer risk on the surface of Mars had an astronaut been, been there and experienced that, just from our modeling. So um, it's, it's going to be a very important part of, of NASA's planning for... Uh, human exploration of Mars. Not many places around the solar system or the universe that are really that friendly to life as we know it. A great place for us to end. Thank you, Rob. It has been delightful as we consider the past of Mars and, and the future of science and exploration uh, on the Red Planet. I hope you'll come back. We can talk another time, maybe, about looking farther out in the solar system and about uh, the dangers those present both to uh, robots and, and to our frail human bodies as uh, we look uh, look outward from our, our pale blue dot. Best of luck. I, I, I'm sure we will definitely want to talk again uh, when the blue and gold, those two components of Escapade, are, are ready to head for the red planet. Well, thanks a million, Matt. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I love what you guys do here, and I would be delighted to come back when we're a bit closer to launch, maybe just after launch or something. Um, that'll be great. Thanks. Thank you again, Rob, for uh, for those kind words, and also for taking some time out from your, your vacation. Um, go off and have a good day. Cheers. Thanks, Matt. Escapade Principal Investigator Rob Lillis is a research scientist at UC Berkeley, where he is also Associate Director of the Space Science Lab's Planetary Group. 
Rob and I go much deeper into the science escapade we'll do in our full conversation at planetary.org slash radio. That's not all. We also talk about Berkeley's partners in the mission and about Rob's colleague, escapade project scientist Shannon Curry. Shannon has become principal investigator on the MAVEN Mars Orbiter mission that Rob also works on. I'll be right back with Bruce. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. LightSail 2 made history with its launch and deployment in 2019, and it's still sailing. Hi, everyone. It's Bruce, Program Manager for the Planetary Society's LightSail program. Your support made this happen. Now we need help to continue the adventure. Gifts in support of our extended mission will be matched up to $25,000 by a generous society member. Details are at planetary.org slash S-A-I-L-O-N. That's planetary.org slash sailon. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. I am joined by the Chief Scientist of the Planetary Society. He is also the Program Manager for LightSail, the LightSail program. If you missed it, you can still watch on demand the uh, documentary made about LightSail 2 and our whole program. It's at uh, youtube.com slash planetary society. And uh, you are prominently featured. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, it's not only the documentary, but the little Q&A that you and Jennifer Vaughn and Bill Nye and I did uh, afterward, which was, uh, which was a lot of fun. But I just watched the documentary for like the fifth time last night, all five times. Absolutely delightful. Just love it. <laughs> it is. It's wonderful. Here's one of those segues. I know what else is lovely. Oh, me? <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> all right. How about the night skies? So in the West. How about it? In the early evening. We've, of course, got super bright Venus. But if you look to the lower right of Venus for the next week or so, you might see the bluish star Spica. And if you look to the lower right of that, Mercury making a guest appearance in the sky. Mercury's looking uh, pretty bright, but you'll have to look have a really good view low to the horizon uh, soon at, relatively soon after sunset. But you can look to the other part of the sky over there in the, that'd be the east, southeast, and you've got really bright Jupiter and to its right, yellowish Saturn. So a good evening planet sky. We've also got the moon, the crescent moon, joining Venus on the 9th of September and joining Saturn on the 16th and Jupiter on the 17th. Get under those skies. We got nice clear skies uh, lately here down in the San Diego area and uh, Venus is still beautiful. Yeah. On to this week in space history. It's it's one of your weeks, Matt. Do you know what, what um, it is? I do. That's right. 55 years ago this week, Star Trek premiered. Still going strong. I think. I think. And speaking of something else still going strong, five years ago, Osiris Rex launched to the asteroid Bennu and has now uh, got headed back towards Earth, carrying samples of Bennu. Chock full of um, bits of asteroid. Yeah, very cool. We move on to... Random space fact. 
<laughs> sort of a tired lion. Couldn't quite find the energy to roar. <laughs> so some stars are big. Yes. Thank you for that fact. You're supposed to say, how big are they? Oh, oh, right, right. I missed my cue. How big are they? Well, one of them, called Stevenson 218, is so big. How big is it? That it's about 2,150 times the radius of the sun. That's about, if you dropped it in our solar system, it's about the orbit of Saturn filled with just a star. Which, by the way, is a volume about 10 billion times the volume of the sun, which we've already established, is big. So this is... (laughs) way totally big by next week i want you to tell me how many earths would fit inside that star because we of course we know it's a million roughly inside our own star inside the sun don't think about it now 10 quadrillion (laughs) you just did the math you Mm -hmm. did didn't you very nice thank you thank you very much that'll do that's enough earths I think I got right 10 to the 9th uh, with 10 to the 6th, uh, 10 to the 15th, uh, 10 quadrillion. Whew, that was exhausting. Now do I have to do it next week also? Yeah, please. All right. But in the meantime, let us go on to the trivia contest. And I asked you to name every type of spacecraft that has carried humans into Earth orbit or beyond as of now. How'd we do, Matt? It's pleasing to see how many people were able to answer this just from memory. Now, the total number of entrants was down a bit, but uh, I'm, I'm proud of those of you who entered, and especially those who just pulled it right off the top of your head. Now, a few of you counted Skylab and the Apollo lunar module, but uh, not exactly. If you listen carefully to the question, which was what, Bruce? It's types of spacecraft that carried humans to orbit... Or beyond, that kind of got added. Which Skylab and the lunar module did not do? No, no. We were looking for just the uh, things that took them into space, into orbit, into, yeah, not just suborbital. Okay, how do we do? Tell us us more. I will, in this response from our uh, poet laureate, Dave Fairchild, Vostok and Mercury, Voskhod and Gemini, Soyuz, Apollo, the space shuttle too, Shenzhou was followed by Crew Dragon, Spacified, Nine different spacecraft all orbiting you. Whoa. (laughs) He's right, right? Yeah, very nice. Nine types. Thank you, Dave. Those are also the nine that were named by our winner this week. Longtime listener, first-time winner, Bill Gowan in North Carolina. Vostok, Mercury, Voskhod, Gemini, Soyuz, Apollo, Space Shuttle, Shenzhou, and Crew dragon. So uh, congratulations, Bill. You are going to, uh, yeah, you'll have your choice of those robotic spacecraft posters from chopshopstore.com, where uh, all the great planetary society uh, merch is and lots of other stuff too. Uh, And uh, yeah, there's some great new ones as well in that new series that uh, Chop Shop uh, is closing out its uh, Kickstarter campaign. Already successful. They're in a, a stretch goal. Uh, for those new robotic uh, spacecraft posters. We are ready for yet another one of these uh, wonderful contests. Talking Dawn spacecraft, who visited Vesta and Ceres. What fuel did the Dawn spacecraft use for its ion engines? And, and, in kilograms, how much of that fuel did they launch with? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. 
Can I say that uh, uh, mission manager or chief engineer uh, Mark Raymond, you are not you are not to enter this one. You are. Oh yeah, we've had that problem before. Yeah, constantly, constantly. <laughs> so here's the prize for whoever uh, gets chosen by random.org and has that correct answer for us by the uh, 15th of September at 8 a.m. Pacific time. It's a brand new book. It just I think it comes out this week or just came out. Uh, in the Little Leonardo series, Fascinating World of Astronomy by astrophysicist Serafina Nance, illustrated by Greg Paprocki. Uh, definitely for the younger set from publisher Gibbs Smith. That's what we've got waiting for you, our winner of this uh, new uh, What's Up Space Trivia contest. All right, everybody go out there, look up the night sky and think about how noble are noble gases. Thank you. Good night. <laughs> That's Sir Neon to you. Uh, he's Bruce Betts, <laughs> chief scientist of the Planetary Society, who joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its generous members. Marco Verda and Jason Davis are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser at Astro.